John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 525.PR2606, certificate number 51969. German telegrams? I have a telegram for Herr Detweiler. I am Herr Detweiler. Yes, sir. All right, you've delivered your telegram. Now get out. You're absolutely right that every German phrase ends with an upturned lilt as though phrased as a question. I'm some kind of shocked Prussian German? military officer. Telegram? I, I'm, I'm just shocked. Yeah. This is are, we, sh- are we covering every German telegram? Every single telegram that's ever come out of Germany. Fortunately, there were only four. Uh, no, today's show is uh, a rare example of one, or hopefully less rare all the time, of a Patreon donor choosing our show topic for us. I feel like we've done, we're getting up to somewhere near a dozen of these. Maybe? Yeah, right. So um, so an exciting time. But for me, especially this episode is a sort of a, an example of a new, a new thing for us, which is that, the, that our, uh, our Patreon supporter, Jeff Nye. Hi, Jeff. Actually came up with a concept rather than... Suggesting a show topic like Ritz Crackers or the Hilbert Hotel. Right. A German telegram is not a, German telegrams is not a single thing. He has a, he has a whole theme. He has a whole slice of history. That's right. He wants us to cross section. Jeff identified a, a, a theme in history and put it together himself out of, uh, out of his own sort of historical knowledge, and it really tickled my omnibus bone. Well, it's great because if, if he does that, that means we don't have to do that. Well, what he did was give me an awful lot more work than than I would have normally done because every one of these German telegrams was a rabbit hole in and of itself. You've been beavering away over there for quite a while. I've Let been, me see your notes. Are your notes more elaborate oh, no, than usual? they're just the same because most of this, I mean, the, the problem is that what makes this a fun show for me is that I... That this is kind of in my wheelhouse. These are the, these are things I I know already. But I really want. I really needed to get some names and dates. Even out. if I hadn't come over today, you probably would have been talking about German telegrams for a couple been, hours. I would have been <laughs> sitting there. You know, I have this uh, life size portrait of Otto von Bismarck here in the in the bunker, 
And I talk to him all day when you're not here. You have him show up at the front door like a Western Union guy <laughs> and hand you a telegram. It's, telegram? It's stuck to his Kaiser helmet. German telegrams? It is a little ominous when a German military man comes to your front door. Not a lot of good stories start that way. Well, yes, that's right. Especially if a, if a telegram comes to you and it's in German and you don't speak German, that is extremely threatening. I would just assume I opened the wrong side of the instruction manual. But like, if, I got to close it and turn it upside down and hope that it'll actually tell me how my toaster oven works. If the person delivering the telegram is Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's and it's a singing tap dancing telegram <laughs> and it's in German, then you have won the lottery for the day. Wait, does Jane Weedland play the the singing telegram person from what, Ferris Bueller and or Clue? Is it Clue? Uh, she's in Clue, yeah. I didn't know that was Jane Weedland. That's Jane Weedland. That's funny. Yeah. I can see it's it now. It's very funny, but also wonderful. It's one of my favorite uh, cameos of all time. It's very it's very short. I didn't even like that movie. She doesn't even get to the end of the song. But I had a, I, I had a Jane Weedland tap dancing um, in that uh, telegram outfit on VHS tape. And just that, I, just that, just that second over and over. And I would rewind it. And Maybe watch it someday if I get into rock, she'll yeah. tap dance on me. Yeah, never happened. Oh. I even had to stop following her on Twitter. She was annoying, but I liked her. She's in not every German. other way. No, I mean, no. And I don't Wiedlin, even know if she speaks German. I guess Wiedland could be. Oh, Jane Wiedland. Is, Telegram? Is she from Wiedland? Hmm. I, I don't know if she's German or not. We've talked quite a bit about sort of the era of, um, Sort of what we think of as the Victorian era, the the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. We've talked a lot about the kind of um, very recently. We talked about the the transcontinental telegraph lines and what the effect those had on diplomacy, and um, and we we return to Central Europe and all of its political machinations over and over, mostly because I can't I can't. Think of a topic that doesn't have some connection to Imperial Prussia. It definitely keeps me from having to dive into it, which which is good. I feel <laughs> extremely dumb when I have to remember what happened before or after the Thirty Years' War. So I'm glad that you're here to handle all this Central Europe stuff. But we're talking about an era in in, in Europe in particular, which was kind of the um, the era of diplomacy and an era where politics and the game of politics was a, like a, an all-consuming fascination for the people of Europe in the mid-19th century and early 20th. Games are often used as a metaphor for geopolitics and diplomacy. And of course, today you can play many great games that derive from, because it, it, it maps very neatly onto a risk or diplomacy type thing. But do you think people in those jobs think of it as a game? Do they get the same kind of fun of strategizing and winning and losing that like how game like really was that art? It um I think it was really a game and and because diplomacy was then in particular not just a question of alliance and um and, you know, flowery language and, you know, uh, sort of pitting one uh, prince apparent against some other sort of, you know, like cadet duke. Uh, but also it was an era of like tremendous 
tremendously like involved social etiquette and hierarchical, uh, like elaborate protocol having to do not just with your, your station in life, but your, your political rank and your alliance and your, the, your dotage, um, your decolletage. There could be duels, which, which is something we've lost in diplomacy. There could be duels, but also an insult, a personal insult could become a political incident and could devolve into war often prompted by, by kind of the, the minorists of slights they had life and death consequences. And so, so, so it was, I guess, cause governments were less unwieldy, the unwieldy apparatus they are today and really more the extension of a single ego. Well, and that, so that's the tradi- the traditional uh, form of government up until the mid 19th century being sort of autocratic and, and, um, and royal. Sure. They were cults of personality and you could, you could offend a king and uh, set your nation on a collision course. It would almost be a game of thrones to coin a phrase. A game of thrones. Is that eight dimensional chess? Like people are always saying that world leaders play today i thought eight dimensional chess was a star trek thing or star trek thing star trek has three dimensional chess but this just oh. proves that like your real thinkers today your eric trump's and so on they're they're five times as smart as mr spock right because they're they're playing or seven or nine times if they're playing 12 dimensional chess sure they have iqs that are up in the 2000 range it's crazy uh but after the mid after the revolutions of 1848 there were all kinds of new governments in europe that were um, various sort of constitutional democracies, constitutional monarchies. There were emperors. There were there were new um, federations. Countries being governed in a lot of different ways, but still, uh, still with this kind of uh, princely class of of demi royals interacting with kings and and princes. Um, Bismarck being kind of the most famous Prussian diplomat, uh, representing the, the, representing Wilhelm, the, the Prince of Prussia, um, or the King of Prussia. Right. It was often the nobility that filled these ambassadorial roles. Right. And I guess today when an ambassador just, ambassador just has to go to dinners and not spill soup on his cummerbund, then maybe it's okay to have some big donor from from Des Moines. Well, but uh I mean at the time were these were these guys good at their jobs? Well, as we've discussed, this was a time before there was as we talked about on the on the uh, transatlantic cable episode, there wasn't that kind of instantaneous communication. So an ambassador was really often um truly the representative of a nation in another capital and able to if not work independently, certainly he had to be able to to field crises and um, speak on behalf of the nation with some autonomy. Sometimes, to use the Star Trek metaphor, sometimes Captain Kirk or whoever can get on the subspace radio horn and some admiral, some cranky old lady or authoritative black man or something will tell him what to do, but usually he can't. Usually there's some limitation on subspace, which means he's just kind of got to do what the Federation would do. Right. He's it. 
he's the law. Got to shoot from the hip. And in a case like that, your diplomats have to be really trustworthy, right? If by extension, everything he says is what the Kaiser would say and he can't check. Well, this often is, you know, this inspires a lot of sort of political intrigue over the centuries. Um, who is speaking on on whose behalf? But in the mid-19th century, transportation across Europe, at least, uh, was improved to the degree that you could, if you were in Berlin, you could communicate with Paris, uh, you know, fairly rapidly. It wasn't, y- y- the, the French ambassador in Berlin wasn't just operating on his own. There's no telegraph, but somebody can get on a train. Somebody can send a, a letter or a raven. Right. And by 1870, there was a telegraph. Okay. So you could communicate more or less instantaneously. The first of our uh, German telegrams is actually known as the Ems Dispatch, although the dispatch isn't the... Uh, the dispatch is, was a telegram sent or a, a, maybe a public relations um, hot take on a telegraph, which was a telegraph that actually reported a personal encounter. So in the, in the mid-19th century, the situation in Europe was very, uh, I, I guess, fluid, given how we think of the borders of Europe being s- somewhat static now. Um, in the 1860s, France still kind of had ambitions to take over Belgium and Luxembourg. And they imagined that, that they could at least integrate the kind of Wallonian part of Belgium into France. And it's still, I mean, there are elements in Belgium that kind of still, I don't know, consider that maybe as a, a Possibility, not just an alliance. They thought they could get part of Belgium to secede. Huh? Well, because Belgium was kind of a recent invention. Can you and imagine if you're the guy that invented Belgium? I know, right? <laughs> of all the things, but do, do you get a patent? You know, Belgium isn't isn't uh, isn't naturally a country, right? Half of the half of the country is a different religion and speak a different language, yes. and you can't DNA test for Belgianness. No, there's right. there's at least two different there's two different major ethnic groups. Yeah, and Luxembourg also is a strange kind of amalgam of Germans, Dutch, and French. And so the uh, French ambition in in the Benelux um, seemed at the time to be kind of a diplomatic matter in that if the French could get enough European nations to agree that Wallonia belonged to France, uh, it's not like the Belgians could defend themselves, right? It was It was... Uh, it was a question that really, you, you, if, if Vienna and Moscow had buy-in, if you could uh, arrange some kind of deal with them. So you just have to go to the opera a lot and be like, hey, I think uh, B- uh, Belgium should be part of France. And then you do a different voice. You're like, yeah, 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 I've been hearing that a lot too. People keep saying that about part of Belgium being France. Totally, totally. Uh, this was a time when uh, Napoleon III had kind of regained the throne in France after all the bad mi- middle years of the Republic. And so there was, you know, there was kind of a r- return to um, an older, a, a brief interregnum between... Quasi-royal, quasi-military kind right. of a takeover. In 1868... Um, there was a revolution in Spain and Isabella too was deposed and suddenly there was a power vacuum in Spain who was going to lead the Spanish 
government? Was it going to be, was there a new king? Was there going to be democracy? Would there, I mean. Some kind of Dauphin or Infanta? Yeah, That's right. what you want. And and there, and w- this is a future omnibus episode, actually, the, the story of the various royal families that still are pretenders to certain thrones. Uh, there is a there is a French king in waiting even now. We've been talking about doing that show for two years. Yeah, like, we like, have. <laughs> if that guy doesn't, are you waiting for him to die? I know. I have it all written down. I just don't know. Why. Every time we we do an episode, I'm like, hey, you know, I should do the for the the defense. No, he's, he's not next getting. Time. He's not getting any younger. The question was not a matter for Spain to decide. It was seen as a pan-European question. Right, because it's a little paternalistic. It was is it, extremely. Is it, is it because Spain's, uh, you know, a Mediterranean country, and there those guys are not as serious as we are? Well, no, it was because the ru- the ruling families of Europe by this point had become so intermingled and garbled. The Hohenzollerns were in charge of this part of Germany and of Romania, and the you know the Austrians were. Also ruling Spain and the French had, you know, that, yeah. I mean, that's why Belgium is what it is, right? That it was, it was, uh, it represented a time when Spain was in charge of the Netherlands. Um, so, so who was installed as the leader of these various royal houses was a question. It, it, it formerly was just a question of marriage and primogeniture, but now it became a question also for states people um, and this class of, of, of European statesmen. The idea has emerged that you have to keep a, a balance of power. Right. And that's what keeps Europe stable is if the right person stays on all the thrones and nobody wants to invade. Right. And that person is, has, uh, alliances uh, exist and, and keep everybody kind of shackled to status quo. It's like an earlier form of mutually assured destruction, except really all you can do is, I don't know, eat a lot of peasants' granaries in Spain. You can't, there's no actual nuclear button you can press, but. No, but you can incite a, uh, a, uh, like a, a European war. Yeah. And, and we're coming through an era where there were lots of little conflicts that, that have attained this sort of, um, mythical status to us you say things like the the uh austro-prussian war and it it's it's it appears in history quite a bit oh the austro-prussian war sure but the idea of like why were austria and prussia fighting um and and what was the result what was the cause of it and what was the result of it it uh in the case of the austro-prussian war it was a time when there were lots of German sort of unaffiliated, un, un, uh, not, not yet united German duchies and little principalities. Mm-hmm. And the question is, or the question was, are the Austrians going to dominate the Germans or are the Prussians going to dominate the Germans? And the Austro-Prussian War kind of half resolved it in favor of Prussia. So a lot of these wars have some, the real subject to some third party who doesn't even make the name of the war. Right. It's like cameo guest appearance by, uh, I can't think of the name of any, uh, Rhine Westphalia. Yeah, right, exactly. Some hypothetical non-Prussian German right. principality. Hesse or, or, um, Saxony. Or exactly. Blah. Saxony. Uh, but anytime two 
uh, anytime the Germans and the Russians or uh, the Germans were having conflicts with one another, of course, the French are taking an interest in it. The, uh, the English are watching the English and French traditional enemies. You've got a, a brand new Italy now in the mix, Spain, really is, of course. It really is easier with two superpowers. Right. The math becomes a lot easier. Then everybody just picks a side. You just have to pick a side. But here it's like, well, we want Russia to be powerful enough to stick up to the Ottomans, but not so powerful that they start to challenge Austro-Hungary. You know, it's it's all very complicated. It is very complicated. And never more so than in in this moment. The question of how to fill the vacant seat in Spain, uh, it was suggested by Bismarck that... Prince Leopold of the German house of Hohenzollern Sigmaringen. Okay. And that is a, that's a. That's a Monty Python character. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Hohenzollern Sigmaringens were only one branch of the Hohenzollern family. And Ho- the Hohenzollerns have produced, uh, you know, Kaisers and uh, rulers of royal houses across Europe. Sure. But there are two Hohenzollerns. The Hohenzollern family split uh, kind of during the Reformation into a Protestant branch and a Catholic branch. The Catholic Hohenzollerns were the Swabian ones that ended up being the ruling family of Romania. And the Franconian uh, Hohenzollerns became kind of the Brandenburgian uh, Prussian Hohenzollerns. But uh, Prince Leopold was a... Swabian Hohenzollern, a Catholic one, and so seemed to be a nice fit for the Spanish throne, mm-hmm. but was a German. And so Bismarck, being a you know a kind of um, player, wheeler dealer, let's call him a player, uh, proposed Prince Leopold, even kind of knowing that this was not going to go over very well. Well, if, um, the Spaniards don't want a German, I assume. Well, this, the fact that he's Catholic is not the deciding factor. I mean, if, if some other country installed a U.S. president, they wouldn't be like, no, you'll, you'll like him. He's Methodist. I'd be like, yeah, but he doesn't speak English. He's from Bulgaria. Well, the thing is that the Spanish are used to uh, being ruled by Germans because the, the royal house of Spain were the Habsburgs for, um, for a couple of centuries there so they don't prior mind. to this. So that it, 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 they're not unaccustomed to it. But it's the French that don't want it because the French are the the French are trying to check German expansion in Central Europe. Even though France has a much larger population than Prussia, the Germans are a constant threat to sort of French sovereignty. France likes a uh, fragmented Germany. They do. They do, and they don't like a united Germany, and they certainly don't want a German on the throne of Spain. So they're surrounded. They're surrounded, and so Napoleon III wants to uh, wants to assure that Prince Leopold does not take the throne of Spain, and Wilhelm I of Prussia recognizes that that was kind of a bridge too far, and acknowledges that they're going to remove Prince Leopold's name from contention. But somehow in this, this world of uh, beribboned diplomacy, that isn't quite enough of an assurance to France. And France and, and, uh, and Prussia are pretty prickly toward one another at this point. And so the French diplomatic corps, headed up by their foreign minister, 
uh, Aguinor, the Duke de Gramont, okay. uh, wants a greater reassurance that not only will, uh, will the Prussians not press the issue of Prince Leopold on the Spanish throne, but that they will never again propose a German to lead Spain. Well, that seems like a big ask. Well, it is a big ask, and it's a kind of, uh, it's the type of thing you get the sense that members of the of the French cabinet are kind of, t- you know, goading one another into greater and greater diplomatic umbrage. Uh, sort of, they've already gotten what they want. Wilhelm withdrew Prince Leopold from contention, but they they want a little bit more. And um, if it, if you think of it as a game, you're always thinking, "Where's my next win?" I right. mean, that's a problem with thinking of diplomacy as a game. So, and the thing is that they're monkeying with Bismarck here, who is the undisputed master of this kind of of brinksmanship. Mm-hmm. But what happens is the ambassador to Prussia, Vincent Benedetti, the the uh, the French ambassador who has an Italian name and was born in Greece. <laughs> Uh, this is a, 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 it's a global economy. You definitely do not want a guy named Vincent Benedetti mad at you. Who knows what's going to happen? That's right. Well, and Vincent Benedetti is not an in, uh, not a uh, intimidating man, but uh, Wilhelm is vacationing in Bad Ems, which is a sort of a, a bath, like a German spa. Oh, town. it means bath. Bath. I was like, I'm not going to go vacation in Bad Ems. No, any you, you, the, you might come to Bad Ems. All the, all the best towns in Germany start with the word bad because it means bath. And that's what the Germans like to do is take baths, long baths. So that's why you that's love why Central I, Europe. That's why I love them so much. Uh, but Wilhelm is out walking around Bad Ems where he's vacationing. And this was a time when the, you know, the, the, uh, the Kaiser could just be out strolling on the promenade and the French ambassador could approach him and entreat him there on the street uh, to assure the French that they would not ever seek to put a German on the throne of the uh, of the the monarchy of Spain. And what does he think about being approached in his spa? Well, he feels he he the the Kaiser takes a, a, a tremendous umbrage at this. It seems it's very presumptuous. He's um, he's sort of rightly offended, but this is all happening in a kind of in a florid diplomatic language. But the the Kaiser, in no uncertain terms, kind of says, "Well, I you're asking me to do the impossible. I can't assure you about the future. So I can't promise you that forever and ever we'll never have a German on the throne of Spain." So, uh, you know, buzz off, buzz off. That's right, via con Dios. And Benedetti goes and... <laughs> Do you think Vaya con Dios means buzz off? <laughs> you should certainly not be on the throne of Spain. I say Vaya con Dios all the time when I mean buzz off. So uh, it's it's something that over time has evolved. Gotcha. Uh, so Benedetti goes and reports back to his superiors. And the Kaiser, uh, his account of the exchange... Uh, Kind of go works its way up the chain to, or not up the chain. The Kaiser's at the top of the chain, but works its way through the chain to Bismarck and the German diplomatic community. And on both sides of this border, the French and the German diplomatic corps, this exchange uh, strikes them as outrageous. The French 
are really offended that the Kaiser treated their ambassador with such disdain. And when the, the, the Germans describe the encounter, and, and Bismarck actually wrote up the encounter in what is called the Ems Dispatch. Oh, this is, so this is the, his account of... That's right. Bismarck talks about, or describes the account in, uh, in terms that make uh, Benedetti look like he was uh, presumptuous and rude. And, the, and so he describes the Kaiser as being extremely dismissive, much more so than he was when the in Ki- actual fact. When the Kaiser writes about it, he's like, in my normal, cool, friendly way, I said, I don't think so. Right. And then, I'm mad, he said, offensively. It's, so it's just going to be he said, she said. Yeah, and Bismarck, you know, uh, Bismarck made it uh, seem like the Kaiser had sent him packing. And that gets translated, and it's kind of from a mistranslation, into French. Um, uh, the German word for the Kaiser's sort of high-ranking assistant that that acted as an intermediary mm-hmm. in later correspondence, the German word is adjutant, um, which in French means kind of a low-ranking, non-commissioned officer. So when the uh, when the exchange was described as, uh, when, the, when the Kaiser said, you need to talk to my adju- uh, adjutant about this issue. What? The French took that to mean that he, that their, you know, that their ambassador to Germany had been sidelined over to talk to some, uh, some very low-ranking soldier, which was a, a, a complete affront in the in the this court of diplomacy that still happens this kind of thing still happens in um international business quite a bit uh i think there are different versions of english where you know when we say to table something it means to put it aside and i think maybe in mm, australian or south african english to table something means to put it on the table and discuss it so let's table this huge offenses have arisen from somebody saying, yes, I agree. I think we should table it. That's not what I'm saying at all. Don't you dare say we're going to table this. And I think, um, I think just now is the same between British and South Africa. One, one group means just now to say, uh, in the near future. And the other person means it to mean, uh, I guess in Britain, it's the immediate past in South Africa. It might mean, the immediate future. Yeah, or maybe in the uh, very vague, who knows, kind of future. Oh. So that's led to actual business issues today. I, I have this issue with uh, with some British friends. It took me a while to realize that when they said they quite liked something, it meant that they didn't like it. <laughs> and I said, you know, in America, if you quite like something, it's you. It's your favorite. To, it, you're trying to sound posh and that you like it. And they're like, oh, no. Because I was at dinner with with uh, with some friends and and um and my friend uh well the the lady friend said how do you like dinner and the boyfriend said i quite like it and she was like oh i'm sorry did i put too much i was like what's happening it's so confusing so quite like it is very very mild approval or quite even like it means doesn't like it i see i think they're they might be using that wrong <laughs> but but he, what what it means is you know it's it's like a form of it's, a, a, it's politeness yes. you never want to say you don't like something yes. but, but that's the know, least enthusiasm I, you're allowed to yeah, show like sort of like it <laughs> but there are diplomatic issues like this all the time it wasn't that long ago that's um that the uh japanese president was served dessert in a silver shoe at some diplomatic event, and you know the Japanese don't even wear shoes in the house. They don't want to eat 
food out of a shoe. It would be like giving somebody a little toilet yeah. with, with, uh, <laughs> exactly. with pudding in it. And so, you know, it created like, uh, but we laugh these things off now. But at the time, this was not a laughing matter. The, the, um, the, fa- the, the umbrage that the Prussians took at having been spoken to this way and, and entreated in this way by a representative of France and the, the reciprocal umbrage that the French took at having their ambassador dismissed so abruptly by the Prussians became on both sides a diplomatic issue to the extent that the French uh, declared war oh. on Prussia. I assumed there would be a few more, take it back, you better take it back. No, they just, they declared war. And the Germans were ripe for it because they had, that because the offense had grown. They were in, mad too. In a very short amount of time. To to such a degree that they were like, well, you know, we'll take on all comers. And the Bismarck at one point, you know, released some of the um, some of the telegrams that he and Bendetti had exchanged around the idea of French assumption of Wallonia, mm-hmm. trying to discredit Benedetti. Although Benedetti, I think later. He in the in the in the immediate aftermath of this problem or this this exchange, Benedetti was kind of r- portrayed as the goat, as somebody who had sparked this disagreement. But he, in his later writings, kind of proved that he'd just been acting as an intermediary. He didn't. He and he had perfectly good relationships with all these people, and this was something that was really sparked by the Kaiser and the and. Napoleon III. You got to throw somebody under the bus. But this began, thus began, the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, The Franco-Prussian War, which ended as a kind of decisive defeat for the French. This was where the French lost the uh, Alsace-Lorraine. This was, the Franco-Prussian War is what really turned Prussia and its confederation of of German states into the German empire. It was like basically what made modern Germany. Uh, well, and therefore everything that comes after, right? You don't get world war one without that. Well, and that's the crazy thing because the, the Prussians imposed upon the French incredibly expensive reparations. Um, like basically, you know, penalized them by requiring that they, hand over 4 million gold ducats or whatever, uh, that's whatever. The, that's the bummer about war. Like you've, you've killed a ton of people and then whoever kills the most people can say, and even though you're doing badly, you got to like, now you got to do more. Pony up. Yeah. Well, and, but w- when we talk about world war one, you know, it's so, uh, it's so easy to talk about these wars as discrete events in history. And we talk about at the end of world war one, the, the onerous reparations that the allied powers imposed on Germany being one of the things that destroyed the German economy, ruined the Weimar government and brought Hitler to power. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a precedent only a few decades before of the Germans imposing these onerous um, 
reparations on the French. So it helps explain Versailles. It's, uh, it's like, hey, turnabout's fair play. This is what you did to us last time. Right. All, and and even in the even in Versailles' own terms, it wasn't um, it wasn't explicitly like get back, but this was this was. Um, the language of the time. And it's living memory for a lot of those people. And it's what ma- it's what made the Marshall Plan so extraordinary at the end of World War II. That we that the rare example of people diplomatically learning from that lesson. Uh, and and in, in the end, it the the result was the the that Napoleon III was deposed. So this one little diplomatic put your foot in it. And, and the resulting flurry of, of dispatches and telegrams. Right. Really changed the, changed the nature of Central Europe. In this instance, in Germany's favor. It seems like kind of the beginning of the modern spin room, where no matter, where no matter what happens, both sides compete. They race to, uh, to make their version of the incident the official one. That's right. And in this case, it seems like they were both successful enough that war was the only alternative. Right. Successful if your goal was war. Yes. Next on our list of uh, crazy German telegrams that that started um, international incidents. Um, Have the Germans ever just thought of maybe not sending telegrams? Well, I think they stopped sending telegrams after World War II, but between 1866 and 1945, um, they hadn't quite figured out uh, not to do this. They're they're bad at this kind of Diplomacy, which is bad at telegrams that might get intercepted by somebody else. Does it have to do with their, you know, stereotypical Prussian brusqueness and directness? It, in, in it a serves lot of, them badly in, in the bald text of a of a telegram dispatch? Uh, uh, that is the case, but in the case of the next two telegrams, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Kaiser Wilhelm II you're going to keep saying two instead of the second? Wilhelm II, the Wrath of Khan? Kaiser Wilhelm II, Electric Boogaloo. Kaiser Wilhelm II, the, the Kaiser Wilhelm that doesn't have Roy Scheider in it. I was just... This is as an aside, but I was looking at an old magazine yesterday, and they had an ad for uh, the Jaws 2 novelization. Oh. And it says in big letters, directed by Gino Schwark or something, some French guy who replaced Spielberg. As if we're supposed to be so excited. Oh my goodness. That the new Janot Swark movie is out. That's the one that has the helicopter that tows the sonar and Jaws grabs the sonar and pulls the <sighs> helicopter down. I don't think I've seen it. It is Jaws 2 is funny because Murray Hamilton, the guy who plays the mayor, is back from the first movie and his right. name is above the title on the poster. Right, because none of nobody else is there. Robert Shaw and uh, Richard Dreyfus <laughs> are gone. But we got Murray Hamilton. The big star, the mayor. Anyway, just when you thought it was safe to go... Back into the German, Germany. the German telegraph office again. We've we've met Kaiser Wilhelm too before, uh, because he Remind is one me. of Queen Victoria's grandchildren. Oh, of course, and he is the one that nobody liked. He is the one with the uh, injured hand, with the chip on his shoulder, who is disagreeable and um, prickly, aggressive, and it's partly because his cousins. The Czar of Russia and the uh, Prince of Wales look just alike and are best friends and everybody vacations together. And, and they don't invite the Kaiser. And he's sad and petulant like uh, 
Like Willem Dafoe in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. That's right. And he looks very much like Willem Dafoe. <laughs> um, at this point in 1896, uh, the global situation still just as complicated as it ever was. But now we turn our attention to Africa. And in South Africa in the uh, in the 19th century, you know, there were uh, there was a lot of competition for the kind of colonial uh, well, there was a lot of colonial competition for all of the land of Africa. And Southern Africa became a, uh, a British protectorate. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about now all of what was Rhodesia and, um, I mean, everything in Southeast Africa, all of South Africa. But that, that, uh, that territory in, in Southern Africa and South Central Africa had been settled initially by Dutch settlers that became known as the Boer Settlers, the Afrikaners, because they were so dull at parties. Uh, Boer is ger- is Dutch for farmer. Gotcha. Right. So they were farmers that had been down in Southern Africa for a long time and believed that they kind of had been there for so long, in fact, since the uh, the 16th century, that they qualified as Africans as much as anyone did. They had. Uh, they were white Africans, just like black Africans were. Just like Charlize Theron or Lindsay Lohan and Mean Girls. Right. So they were, they, the, the Boers really did, and in a lot of cases still do, believe that they have every right to uh, not just be in Africa, but to rule Africa. And does Germany back these guys up even though they're Dutch? Well, the Germans and the Dutch have uh, a lot in common. A lot, they share a border, but also a lot of. The language overlap, fried foods. Um, that's right. They like they like all kinds of liver, weird liver pastes <laughs> dipped in bread and fried. I'm sorry, sir. We have to send troops to Africa. You know the Dutch love liverwurst. But the the um, but there there isn't a, a natural automatic alliance between the two. But there is when the Dutch come into contention with the British. Because they want to, they want to, they don't want the British expanding in Africa. Like the Germans have some claim, right? Oh, what's today? Tanzania was once German. Yeah, there are, there are German territories in Africa too, but they're, but they're not related to the current story. As the, oh, okay. as the British came in and, and, and developed hegemony over Southern Africa, um, Queen Victoria made some concessions to uh, the Afrikaners, the, the Boers that were already there. Per, particularly because the Boers were uh, extremely rebellious. They they resisted being told what to do by the British or by anyone. Um, they were kind of legendary marksmen and guerrilla fighters. They were um, tenacious fighters uh, as, a, as just sort of a general um, sort of cultural sense of themselves. They... They liked to make war. They fought the Zulus to a standstill. And they got out of Europe because they didn't like to be told what to do. They're a bunch of cranky libertarians with pitchforks. That's precisely who they were. And so much so that they retreated from um, from their, like, I guess you, they would describe them as their homelands or their traditional lands in Africa and formed two new sort of Dutch uh, republics, the uh, the Transvaal Republic and the Orange Free State uh, there in South Africa. And 
and were able to rule those areas with a certain amount of autonomy. Um, even as the British moved in. Even as the British moved in, because the because Queen Victoria kind of was like, okay, we'll sort of let you let you do your thing here. Um, but there was a lot of British anti-Dutch sentiment in South Africa. The the two populations did not get along. And within the British military establishment, a desire to defeat the Dutch, sort of defeat them uh, and impose rule upon them. Weird racism against the Dutch. If you can, if you can imagine anything they worse. They anticipated omnibus. <laughs> We're right, right with our, our constant theme of anti-Dutch racism. Mm-hmm. Um, so the British put together a kind of adventuring troop to uh, to venture into the Dutch territory and uh, you know raid them and and put them under the boot uh, to force them into submission. And that that raid was called the Jameson Raid. It was led by a man by the name of Leander Starr Jameson. And the Jameson Raid went into uh, the Transvaal Republic, and the Boers really handed them their keisters. Wow. Uh, they are good marksmen. Yeah, beat them pretty badly. Marks people, sorry. And this, you know, was a, uh, this was a dramatic defeat for the British there. Um, the British were struggling in South Africa for quite a while. I mean, the Zulus were a formidable force there, and it didn't help them that they were also fighting the Dutch, and the Dutch were also sort of fighting the Zulus. It was really a good time. Good time was had by all. Good time for friendly fire. Yeah, it was like the the American. It was like the uh, the the French and Indian Wars here in the United States. Like, yes. The French aren't fighting against the Indians. The French and the Indians are fighting against the British. <laughs> Except for the Indians that are fighting for the British. Right. Anyway, Kaiser Wilhelm, who is always trying to assert himself in Central Europe and assert himself in Africa and compete against his more prominent uh, cousins in Britain and Russia, sent a congratulatory telegram to the leader of the of the uh, the Boers, Stefanus Kruger, and the telegram initially was really bellicose. Um, Wilhelm composed this like congratulations on defeating the you know the uh, the unjust and unrighteous British. My hated cousin. Uh, Does he mean for the British to see this, or is he just kind of are they chortling together over how much they dislike the British mutually? He he is not a good diplomat, uh, Wilhelm too, mm-hmm. and he believes that he can kind of strike up a rearward action. That if the British are tied down in um, in a land war in Southern Africa, that it will increase his power in Northern Europe. And he doesn't understand the world of alliances. He doesn't understand that it's a global world. He believes that he could in potentially incite a war in Africa, but that Britain and Germany would maintain friendly uh, diplomatic relationships in Europe. Mm. And his his diplomatic core and his, you know, his various, um, uh, like, advisors in Germany. Adjutants? Are, are, his adjutants are trying to explain to him that that's not how it works, but he has a violent temper and um, and you know, tends to not listen to reason. So he is convinced not to send his most bellicose uh, 
telegram of congratulation. But he does force through a still a, a telegram that a watered down version, a watered down version, but one that uh, that really, really offended um, the British when it leaked. So it does leak. So the final version said, I express to you my sincere congratulations that you and your people, without appealing to the help of friendly powers, have succeeded by your own energetic action against the armed bands which invaded your country as disturbers of the peace. Ooh, bands. Yeah. So it's not even a, an army or a, right. a legitimate colonial power. Which, which isn't wrong. I right. mean, it was kind of a, a, a ragtag raid, but still. Uh, and the, he goes on to say, in restoring peace and in maintaining the independence of the country against attack from without. The funny thing is, no one, this is like the internet meme where it's like, no one, no one, no one. Kaiser Wilhelm, hey, good job <laughs> kicking the British's butts. I have some thoughts about that. Like this telegram serves no purpose. No, it, 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 the, the only purpose is that um, that the Kaiser is trying to do the age old game of of alliance, and he's trying to ally himself. He's trying to, you know, he he goes and talks to the Czar and says, "Hey, cousin, you know, want to uh, want to make an alliance against the British?" And the Czar is like, "No, I'm not really interested in that." And he says, "Oh, well, what about uh, what about you, the Dutch? What about you?" And all he does is create incredible indignation in Britain. Uh, in particular, his use of the phrase friendly powers. Um, Referring to whom? Well, what he meant, what, what, what the British interpreted that to mean was that the Kaiser would intervene on behalf of the Dutch in mm. Europe if called upon. Um, the big problem that the Kaiser has is that the British Navy controls the seas. And so his belief that he can have any effect on politics in Africa um, is diluted because the Germans can't ship anything to South Africa. The British would interdict it before it left the Baltic Sea. Right. So it inspires in the British press uh, like tremendous condemnation. And it is only his relationship, uh, the the Kaiser's relationship with his grandmother that smooths things over. Mm. She's really offended. And he writes her a, um, a, a, you know, a passionate letter of apology. Oh, I never, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean that. Is it a telegram? Uh, no, I think he even, you know, the, the Kaiser was the only one at her bedside when she died. Ah. So he did have a special relationship with her, even though I think he was probably her, she was very important to him. He was less important to her. Not the favorite grandchild. Right. So, um, and it, you know, but, but this laid some of the groundwork uh, where the relationship between the Kaiser and the Prince of Wales, who became Edward VII, King of England, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this was one of the things that sort of soured what was already a kind of sour relationship. Um, th this turned public opinion against the Kaiser. Because as you know, like Queen Victoria and the royal family of England were a Germanic family. There was every reason for those two nations to feel an alliance there. I wonder if the odds are that there would have been one if the Kaiser hadn't been so ham-handed. If the Kaiser had been a different guy. Yeah, maybe so. So now fast forward to World War I. Um, Kaiser Wilhelm II is on the throne 
the uh the germans and the and the french and the english and the russians are at war um and the germans definitely want to keep the united states out of the war they recognize that the that the us is a major threat the germans have been kind of antagonizing um the united states for years leading up to world war 1 because the you know the kaiser was what have they been doing making making fun of rodeo well one of the ways that the that the that imperial germany messed with the united states was by meddling in the affairs of mexico oh in the early 20th century mexico was a fairly unstable uh country there there um there were a a few governments in rapid succession. This was the era where Pancho Villa was raiding into the United States. General Pershing was crossing the border. There were, uh, there were blockades of Mexican ports. It was fairly, again, living memory, um, that parts of Southwestern United States were, were parts of Mexico. Um, the Spanish American war was not that long ago. There was a lot of um, there was a lot of anti Mexico sentiment in the United States, and there was a lot of anti German sentiment, but from different quadrants because there were also a lot of German immigrants in the U.S. And so the uh, you know Irish immigrants and German immigrants and Italian immigrants were kind of fighting proxy battles of public opinion within the American press and in American cities. Yeah, it's true. Before both World War One and Two, there were proud and prominent German American communities trying to make the case that the U.S. should be German ally. Right, and that was very true in the U.S. And the Germans wanted to encourage those people, but also wanted to shore up their support in Mexico because they felt like, in the event of war with the United States, to have Mexico as an ally. You, you want a land border. That's right, and you want somebody that. Uh, Somebody that could fight a rearward action. So the, the Germans kind of misunderstood the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico and un- misunderstood internal Mexican politics. There wasn't, I don't think, anyone in Mexico that believed they could win a land war with the United States. The, the imbalance of resources and, and whatnot were, were too great. The last one hadn't gone well. And there wasn't a lot of... Um, there was a lot of anti-Americanism in Mexico, but there wasn't a real desire, uh, except among a very small faction, to recapture Arizona, for instance. Um, and but the United States liked to portray Mexico as ambitious. Um, at, at, you know, Pancho Villa raiding into the United States because it served, you know, it served our interest to keep. It creates patriotism right. and yeah, a distraction with a common enemy. Justification to send our send our boys on adventures overseas. The usual bad news. Um, but as the as the war progressed, the Germans recognized at a certain point that they needed to expand their submarine warfare to include all of the merchant marine uh, ships that were bringing goods to England and France. From the United States. The, the U.S. was a neutral country, officially, um, but elements in the United States were, were supplying the Allies with war materiel. 
And the Germans needed to expand their submarine warfare to become unrestricted submarine warfare in order to try and strangle uh, Great Britain. It's going to tick off the U.S., though. It's really going to tick off the U.S. And what the Germans don't want to do is get America into the war. Uh, And they kind of want to both assure and also kind of shore up their bets with the United States. They want to assure us that they that they want no trouble from us, but they also kind of want to shore up their bets. So in January of 1917, the foreign minister of, uh, of Germany composes a telegram to his ambassador in Mexico, suggesting to the president, the kind of unstable and recent president of a not very unified Mexico, uh, Venustiano Carranza, mm-hmm. uh, proposing that if the Germans enter into war with the United States, which is not yet an assured, uh, an assured result, but if as a result of initiating unrestricted submarine warfare, the Germans enter into war with the U.S. And what they're thinking is if the U.S. declares war. If the U.S. declares war okay. on us. If Mexico will declare war on the United States, then the Germans will support their war effort with munitions and funds. And in the event of an, of an inevitable victory against the United States. Uh, who could defeat Germany and Mexico Germany together? And Mexico Imagine together. their World Cup team. It would be fantastic. And the, the Germans actually tried to get Japan in on this deal. And Japan was like, we're going to sit this one out. Germexapan. But um, – but in the event that Mexico aids the Germans in defeating the United States, that Germany would award Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico as spoils of war. Germany's already picked out which parts of uh, the United States. Right. Hey, we know you guys want these. Also, also the city of Baltimore and also <laughs> Niagara Falls. You get an option on the Idaho Panhandle. And, uh, you know, what? A, this is a very ham-handed idea. Uh to assume that Mexico would even want these things. Mexico clearly doesn't want to try and rule Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico any more than you or I would want to try and rule those three states because those three states were already well settled by 1917. (laughs) Yeah, how's that going to work exactly? Settled by rowdy, well-armed cowboys who are not going to take uh, rule... You know, from Venustiano from, Carranza. Yeah, right. There's, it's not like that is going to ever pan out, and and Carranza is not uh, doesn't have a majority of support even in Mexico. <laughs> so does is he beguiled by this vision? No. So so what happens is Zimmerman uh, wants to send this telegram to Mexico, but as we discussed in our episode about transatlantic cables. The British, the first thing they did at the beginning of World War I was cut right. all of the German cables, uh, effectively rendering Germany unable to communicate with the outside world. There were cables that crossed the Atlantic. One of them was owned by the Swedes. One of them was owned by the Americans. And the American cable, the Americans at this point were nominally neutral in the war. And so the Germans were able... And the, and the Americans had... Did had, they use the American cable to threaten to partition part of America to Mexico? The Americans had assured the Germans that they could send a limited number of diplomatic cables over their 
over the American cable. None of these are going to be about Germany taking over Texas, right? You well, promise? And, you, and, you double dog pinky swear? And the deal was that all of the German cables had to be sent in uh, in plain language. They see, couldn't coded. be coded. Um, that was kind of the arrangement. But the, but the German foreign office convinced the Americans that in this case, it was a very uh, secret message that they needed to send in code to their representative in Mexico, could they use the American cable to send this coded message? And that's, the Amer- that's bold. The Americans at the time said, okay, we'll let you do it. Um, and so the Germans set about to uh, to send this telegram, um, what became known as the Zimmerman telegram. Zimmerman is some German envoy? Uh, G- Zimmerman was the, the, um, the, the German foreign minister. Okay. But the problem is that these transatlantic cables that go across from Sweden to the United States have to go through England because they need to have the signal boosted to make it across the Atlantic. So all these cables actually cross England, and the English, in their duplicitous way, are intercepting all the cable traffic in a um, an espionage group called Room Forty, and Room Forty is taking all the you know taking everything that they're reading says. everything. There's no way to know what's coming from Germany. Reading all the mail. Well, so they get this coded message. Um, Do you want Texas? Stop. We will throw in <laughs> Cincinnati. Stop. They're really effing up your chili. Uh, they get it and they decode it. Now, the Americans, in our sort of naive way, pass the message on through. Um, but the British decode it and realize that this is the thing that is going to get the Americans into the war. Um, but if they reveal the contents of the telegram, they will also reveal that they're intercepting everybody's telegrams. Uh, we opened your mail. And so they have to... Uh, they have to gin up a – they have to kind of back-engineer a way that they can steal the telegram from a Mexican source oh, I see. and then reveal it in the U.S. press. The problem is that there is so much anti-Mexican sentiment in the U.S. that when it is revealed, it does not be – it's not um, – it's not popularly accepted. It seems like a fake provocation because there's a lot of anti-British sentiment and pro-German sentiment in America in 1917. So the idea that the British had, had gamed this, um, using mistrusted Mexico, right. right. Uh, made the, made the revelation, not that convincing. Fake news. Everyone said, that's right. The, the thing about it was that the British revealed to Woodrow Wilson that, it was a genuine telegram. And so Wilson then was in a, in a sort of position where he needed to, um, it's tricky. Popular opinion still against it and he can't tell them why. That's right. So within the U S there, uh, this lack of consensus was, um, you know, finally like any doubt was dispelled when Zimmerman himself gave a speech in the Reichstag and said, yeah, uh, it was, uh, I, I sent the telegram. 
What? What? Why would he? It's basically a few good men. Did they trick him into? He thought you need me sending those telegrams. He actually, uh, an American journalist asked him, and he was like, "Yeah, I can't, I can't deny it." Um, he thought that there was more of an understanding with America than there was, and he believed that Americans didn't want to enter the war, and that it was clear that what he meant was uh, it wasn't a threat. He was just saying, if the Americans declared war, this is what we were going to do. But that's not, we don't want that. Right. This is it's just a backup plan. And it was, uh, it was only, um, and, and, oh, and the Germans had started unrestricted submarine warfare by this point. So Congress only uh, about a month later declared war on Germany and the Zimmerman telegram, um, you know, played a big role in turning American opinion against Germany and bringing us into the war. It sounds like it might've happened anyway, or maybe the submarine warfare was accelerated because the dominoes were already falling. Yeah. I think if the U S already has the telegram, I think that in a lot of these diplomatic cases, the, the, um, the drive to war just needs a, a little flash in the tinder. We've seen that in our lifetime. doesn't take much, right? It doesn't take much. The, the, the stuff is already there. But the question of whether or not the war would have happened, um, I mean, George W. Bush would not have invaded Iraq, I don't think, would not have had a pretext if not for 9-11. These are much smaller incidents, or much smaller diplomatic incidents but even, than even 9-11. 9-11 didn't do it. You had to... You had to oh, make sure weapons Col- of mass destruction. Yeah, you had to make sure Colin Powell didn't know. You had to have all those yellow cake stories. Right. I mean, a few of those. So when when you you know when you want a war, you find a way. But these uh, these faux pas are, um, you know, they end up th- this now having been the third of four faux pas uh, in just a space of fifty sixty years. It does lead one to think that maybe that the, the Germans should unplug their phones. Take away their telegraph key. Absolutely. Is that the final one or is there more telegraphs to come? The last German telegraph that, um, that changed the world actually was an intra German telegraph. Not, it was not international. It was intranational. Um, and it was a telegraph sent at the, uh, at the very end of the war from Hermann Goering to Adolf Hitler. Hitler was, at this point, ensconced in his Hitler bunker, his Führer bunker, and the Russians were on the outskirts of Berlin, and bombs were raining down. The German army was completely defeated. Goering was up in the uh, up in the Alps in his little uh, little in his like manor house full of impressionist paintings and. <laughs> and, uh, you know, gold-plated finger Se- pinky rings. Seized decadent artwork. Uh, and with between Hitler and Goering throughout the 30s and 40s, um, it, was, it was not just an understanding, but it was a matter of public record that Goering was Hitler's, uh, like, anointed deputy and... Um, heir apparent. Heir apparent. Yeah. And so... Throughout, I mean, Hitler had so many um, underlings executed and and uh, thrown into pits over the course of his career. But some, for some reason, this boorish aristocrat in the personage of in the personage of Goring, 
never ran afoul of Hitler. Yeah, I wonder why. They always were thick as thieves, even though Goering couldn't have been, you know, he was a glutton. He was a- Jolly Bavarian. Yeah, right. And Hitler was a vegetarian ascetic. Maybe that helped. Maybe so. But in the in their relationship and and in their um, in written into German law, the law of succession, at a point at which time that Hitler was incapacitated, unable to issue orders, taken prisoner, killed in in any way, incapacitated, Goering was to take over Germany, and. Since Hitler was confined to the Führer bunker and all signs pointed to the fact he had no intention of escaping and was no no longer at liberty even to go outside and smoke a cigarette, which he didn't do, um, Goering, along with his advisors, uh, sort of came to the conclusion that in order to finish out the war, in order either to prosecute the war after Hitler is killed or um, – or to make peace with the Allies. It's not a great job. If you're going to be Fuhrer of something, oh, I don't want to be Fuhrer of a of a bombed out Germany. I mean, yeah, right. Well, I mean, defeated Germany. Ask uh, ask Admiral Duritz, who ended up getting the job. Well, that's what I've never understood. Why did Admiral Duritz get the job? Uh, well, because Goering, in his, I and I, I don't think that you could say. Um, Enthusiasm, because Goering was very, he was very aware of Hitler's personality, very conscious of not wanting to um, infuriate the Führer, who infuriate. So Hitler's a, you're telling me Hitler, Adolf Hitler is a bad boss? He's a bad boss, and at this point, of course, also like a speed freak and uh, super paranoid. So we got a real Devil Wears Prada situation. In the bunker, right? He knows. Um, he knows that uh, the Führer is unstable, and and weirdly, at this point in time, everyone is still scared of the Führer. Have you seen that movie, uh, The Last Days of the Führer, where it's a, it's a drama, but they're all, um, what's it called? The the bunker. Is that the one that is always in the meme downfall? Where yeah, uh, Bruno, downfall. Bruno That's Gons what is. is playing Hitler. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Have you seen Downfall? Yeah. It's astonishing, you know, you hear the Russian cannons, and yet all of these German, you know, Reichsmarshals still are listening to this total nut, and none of them ever stand up to him and say, like, it's over, you're done, like, there are no armies, why are we looking at this map? I guess you don't even think of it as an option. It's not an option, right? You're yeah. you're so enthrall. And here, you know, Goering's up at Berchtesgaden, like, he could do whatever he wants, um, but he sends a telegram. He sends a telegram to Hitler, and it's a very um, it's a very mealy mouth telegram. He says um, something to the effect of, "Look, I know that you're great and you'll always be the ruler of Germany, but look, we haven't been able to get you on the phone, <laughs> and it's not clear what's going on, and somebody needs to negotiate on our behalf. So if it's if you don't want it, it'd probably be easier for me to do it. But listen, uh, it's not a big deal. If you don't want it, it's fine. Don't worry. I love you. I'll always love you. It's cool. Signed, Hermann Goering. Well, it arrives in the Führer bunker, and Hitler 
has already lost his mind, reads it, and freaks out. And he's convinced by his, you know, super good friends, uh, Himmler and and uh, and Borman and all of those delightful, cheery fellows. We don't actually think they're delightful. Um, that's right. For those of you who, <laughs> who don't understand that Joseph Goebbels is not a friend of me and Ken, let's be explicit. If you're one of the listeners <laughs> who gets annoyed that we mention Nazis or slavery without then spending... 45 minutes talking about how we really don't think much of Nazis or slavery. No, uh, we're being ironic when we say that Joseph Goebbels is, uh, is one of Hitler's jolly friends. Uh, they, because, you know, everyone's always playing a game of who's Hitler's closest friend and, and everyone else is his enemy. They finally, in, the, in Hitler's last hours, turn him against Goering. Wow. And Hitler denounces him and sends him a, a you're dead to me forever you're no longer my second in command, and now it's Sternitz that's going to take uh, Germany into. He's going to continue to fight the war. <laughs> it's, it's, it's next great era. The, the thousand years is just beginning. It's so good. Yeah, Sternitz was Führer, but like for uh, you know uh, less than a week or something, right? Yeah, right. I mean, he just and I think he would. He was. Um, he was president. He never, he, I don't oh, think he became right? Fuhrer, but, um, so in sort of in response to, uh, Goering's high treason, um, so he, Hitler sent him that, that, uh, that email I just about said, sent him that telegram, <laughs> uh, accusing him of high treason on the 25th of April. And, um, And partly in response to it, uh, in response to the te- the telegram he got from Goering, he wrote his last will and testament, and only uh, only four days later committed suicide in the bunker. Um, so and and had dismissed Goering not only from uh, from his all of his jobs, but expelled him from the Nazi Party. Can you imagine? Goering making it all the way to April of 1945 and then getting expelled from the Nazis? What an indignity. It's too bad it didn't do him much good uh, after the war. Hey, I'm not a party member, you guys. Right. Hey, you guys. Check it out. Hitler was just as mad at me as he was at you. We're all, we're all in this together in these trying times. What's interesting is that in 2015, the actual telegram, which was found in the Führer bunker... By uh, by an American soldier by the name of Captain Braden, who took the telegram, the the one stamped with like received received in Führer bunker. It was delivered by the Nazi uh, telegraph delivery guy from Sound of Music. Uh, oh right, <laughs> he, he pulled up on his bike to the bunker. No, I think it was Jane Weedland. <laughs> uh, but this is the piece of paper, right? That presumably somebody held up and read aloud to the Führer. Um, this captain took it, took it home. Kept it in a safe deposit box. His son, at one point, I guess, was attending the Citadel and took it in to show it to his commander. And the commander of the Citadel kind of recognized what it was. He probably had a huge collection of Third Rec memorabilia at home. I bet he did. He had a whole (laughs) dinner plate set. Uh, And then the kid actually gave it to him as a gift. Uh, But it went up for auction in 2015, the telegram itself, and sold for $55,000. Wow. 
which seems like kind of a deal. I wouldn't be tempted to pay that much. I, you know, I'd buy the Silverdome for that, but I wouldn't buy a Nazi telegram. But still, that, that does seem like less than you would think. Given its, given both its historical import and the fact that it's the fourth and final telegram in our German telegrams episode. What a journey. It'd be worth more now. Is your position that maybe this was the, this was the telegram that made Hitler give up? Losing his, losing his close friendship, possibly homoerotic friendship with Hermann Goering? I'm going to go on record and say that Germany was going to be defeated in World War II, and Hitler was going to <laughs> die way. in the bunker and be burned in a pit with some gasoline. But is this his moment of this is his moment of realizing? I feel like this is the thing, this is the point at which he he completely cracked. Like just like the the his his oldest and most like devout second in command turns on him and he realizes that all is lost. Well, it's sometimes said that we should do Hitler, give Hitler a little more credit because at least he killed Hitler. But if what you're hmm. saying is true, that's not true at all. We should be giving Goering, Goering a little more credit. And Goering did did it one better. Killed Hitler and killed Goering. Wow. <laughs> and that concludes German Telegrams. Entry 525.PR2606, certificate number 51969, in the omnibus. Uh, futurelings, uh, if, uh, if you're looking to communicate with us in our era through the scourge of social media. And every time we mention social media, just like Nazism and slavery, we hasten to mention that it's a great ill and a great blight on humanity. Uh, but if you must know, uh, John and I were at Omnibus Project uh, on social media. He is at John Roderick in our current era on Twitter and Instagram, where you are no longer posting pictures of your ravine. Uh, what do you post now? I did a couple of days ago, actually. You I posted a bunch of pictures of my ravine. John's still in his ravine. It's a nice ravine. Do you have Wi-Fi in your ravine? Can you, can you, uh, no. can you tweet directly from there? No, I don't. Uh, he's on Twitter, as at John Roderick, where he just talks about which of the droids he thinks is cutest. He, right. Some days he thinks it's cute little BB-8. No, I like the... Uh... I like the Trade Federation uh, war robots. Roger, Roger. They're the worst. Uh, you could follow me at Twitter. I'm at Ken Jennings. You could uh, look for the future links on Facebook or Reddit or Discord. You could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Tell us what you think about Nazism or slavery or social media. Hopefully you're against all three. Um, if you want to send us physical artifacts... Uh, a listener named Don, John, you haven't seen these, just sent me a, a birthday gift. It's uh, Oh, what'd you get? It's my birthday next week. And she sent us uh, this Warhol. <gasps> Look at those. Warhol-like prints. How bizarre and great. Of uh, of you and I. Are you going to... Oh, it's a little are, triptych. Are you going to uh, put them up in your office as a triptych? I don't know if I want a picture of you in my office. Can I have the top one? I think we should hang them together. If we if we hang them together when you uh, oh, I when see. you get your own bunker remodeled, decorate the bunker. The thing about this picture is how much I look like Hitler in it. You do. You really Quite have your bit. Hitler mustache there, and you look a little like Goring. This is cute. Uh, well, it's interesting because yours is uh, mine is in reverse. Yeah, you notice that <laughs> your, <laughs> mine is not. Yours is is regular exposure, and mine is reverse exposure. Oh, but not all of them are in this one. 
I'm reverse. It depends on just which color she chose for the. Oh, how interesting! But you're right. She did choose to. Uh, this is like you're the um, you're the bizarro world or, or antimatter universe version of me. Yeah. That's why we have to do this from the opposite ends of a six foot table. Mm -hmm. We're not. We don't care about coronavirus. We just don't want the universe to end. Uh, we also got this postcard from uh, Andrew. It, it, apparently, instead of doing a Christmas card this year, he did a springtime quarantine postcard where his whole family is in pajama pants. Oh, that's sweet. Hi, and, Andrew. And uh, even though they live in Washington now, Andrew wants us to know that in Chicago, they called Sadie Hawkins Day Turnabout. Oh, Turnabout. Well, that's fair play. It is fair play. Uh, his wife's from here, though, and she calls it correctly, Tolo. His wife speaks Chinook jargon, apparently. Uh, so, yeah, uh, why not? Why not mail us things? We'll talk about them for no reason at the end of the show when many people have already tuned out. Yeah. You... If you tune out on this show before the outros, you are... Well, you've already tuned out, so you're not hearing this, but you are wrong. For, let's make fun of all those people that aren't <laughs> listening right now, now that they're not here. What a bunch of dopes and Mensa members. Let's send a bellicose telegram about them, <laughs> now that we know they won't intercept it. I heartily congratulate you, the listeners who are still here. Not like those weak, <laughs> uh, watered-down nincompoops who bailed ten minutes ago. Nincompoops. There's probably half an hour more of show. Nincompoops? Nincompoopin'? If there's half hour more to this show, it will definitely be the longest episode of Omnibus. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been some long ones lately. Yeah. What a treat for people who don't think this show is long enough, if any. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, can support the show financially if you're able to do so. Become part of our Omnibus family. Become part of our community at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We have no idea what the longest episode of Omnibus will be. I'm going to put money on 145. One hour, 45 minutes will be the longest Omnibus. Oh, I thought you meant episode number 145. Oh, no, we're past that. Yeah, we did that a long time ago. Episode number 145 was... Mussolini's nose. Hmm. Mussolini's nose. And it was very short because we were doing it over the phone. <laughs> it was a pain in the. It was a pain in the nose. Uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.